Please be seated. Our sermon passage today will be from Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9 to 20, which can be found on page 941 in your church Bibles. Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 9 to 20. There is an outline in the middle of your bulletin if you would like to follow along and take notes. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this message from Zephaniah. And Father, as we go through this message of judgment and hope, we pray that you will help us to understand what you want us to understand. And Father, we pray that you will help us to submit to your word, that we will respond in the right way. All this we ask in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. Now, we have been following the series on Zephaniah. This is the third and final part. And throughout the previous two weeks, we have seen how Zephaniah is a picture of God's judgment and destruction. And knowing all of this, would you pray for the day of the Lord to come soon? And knowing that this judgment falls on everyone, even God's people of Israel, you as God's people, would you be able to pray, your will be done on heaven as on earth? Now, throughout Zephaniah, we see this promise of a judgment to come. And the reason for it is because of arrogant pride. People of Israel has turned their back on God. They have turned away from worshipping God. And so judge, judgment falls on them. And last week, we saw how the judgment doesn't just stop at them. God also promises to destroy the nations that surround Israel because they too have rejected God. So throughout this passage of Zephaniah so far, We've been seeing something that is bleak and something that is discouraging because everywhere it's about destruction and how God will bring terrible things. And then we come to our passage today and we see a sudden reversal. In verse 9, we see hope. God is going to save people. And as we continue reading, we will also see the picture of mercy, of exaltation and joy. Now, for most of us, it wouldn't be strange for us because we would just say, well, that's the next part. There's even a little title in your Bible that says the conversion of the nations, right? So we separate it and we just think of it as by itself. But remember, there were no chapters, there were no paragraph breaks back then in the original scripture. The original readers, they heard this scripture read to them without page breaks, without subtitles. And so, they would have heard verse 8, and then verse 9, and then verse 10. And this is how it would have sounded to them, reading from verse 8. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather nations, 
to assemble kingdoms and to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Can you see how this is a very strange reading for us? What happens in verse 9, this picture of hope, is tied into the judgment. Verse 9 tells us, for at that time. So, it is at the time of judgment when God is going to work out a great change to the nation. It's linked in together. God's judgment and God's mercy. So we see in verse 9 that this plan God has for saving people, it is pictured as God changing the speech of people to a pure speech. And this is a picture of the reversal of what happens at the Tower of Babel. Now for those of you who remember reading through Genesis, in the book of Genesis, mankind came together in their arrogance, in their pride. They said, we will build a tower that will reach up to the heavens so that we can build a name for ourselves. And God, seeing the arrogance, decided to judge them. So he confused their language and they were not able to understand each other. And so they abandoned the project and each person went and to separate parts. So there's a picture of a dispersion, right? So at, in, at Babel, we see this unity that comes out of arrogant pride, which leads to judgment from God. And here, we see the reversal. From many languages, it becomes one language, and we see then a unity which comes for the right reason, for the purpose of calling on the name of the Lord and serving him. And friends, this is actually a picture of God bringing in Gentiles and Jews and yoking them together to serve the Lord. With that then, we come to verse 10. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshippers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. Now, there's two ways to understand God's promises here. Now, one way is that it could be referring to the judgment that God has already promised. And God is saying, when I restore any Israelite who are dispersed, who ran away, I will bring them back so that at the end, all of God's people that he wants to save are going to be saved. It's to give them assurance. I don't think that's as likely because I think the other possibility is that it's not just talking about Israelites here because we have just seen that it's talking about judgment to all the nation and this picture of salvation that comes to all the nations, not just the Jews. So we can see here a picture of how God has predestined, he has foreknown his people, even before the foundations of the earth, and he is bringing them back to him. And this implies that God has a plan to ultimately bring in Gentiles to be his worshippers, to be his people. And if we remember from the book of Ephesians, which we did recently, Paul saw this as a great mystery, which finally is revealed through the gospel. The gospel, the salvation of God, was for both Jews and Gentiles. 
So God's salvation was never merely about racial, national Israel, but rather God is making his Israel, his people, his church, and he's bringing in outsiders. And from national Israel, he's going to save a remnant which is faithful to him, and he's going to make his Israel. And so it is with that that we come to verse 11 to 13. And here, we see how these people who have been drawn together by God, how they look like, what's their character like. In verse 11, we see that the remnant that is gathered together are made pure. They are made righteous in the judgment. And in that judgment also, those who are proud no longer remain. And then in verse 12, these gathered people, they are called humble and lowly, and they seek refuge in the Lord. Have you realized there is no mention here of the great works of ministry that they've done? There's no mention here of their great successes in promoting God's name. There's no mention here of them being great heroes, great warriors. The only thing that we are told about them, the only thing that matters is that this remnant are those who humbly take refuge in the Lord because they put their trust in God for their salvation. So we see here the picture of God who saves those who humbly come to him and God who casts out the people who are proud and self-assured. <clears throat> then we see the character of this redeemed remnant, these humble people that God has gathered. Verse 13, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. And we see this picture of these people being changed. They become a people who long for justice, for truth, for all the good things that represents God's character. And here, they're described as if they are sheep, where they graze and they lie down, and they shall have no worries. As if sheep under the care of a shepherd that they trust. Now, for those of you familiar with the Old Testament Bible, you will remember God pictures himself as the shepherd of his people. There's an allusion here to being trusting in God and being content. But even more than that, if you come to the New Testament, you will remember Jesus said he is the good shepherd. So, for the people at that time, knowing that this is a prophecy that's going to promise them that destruction is coming to them, this message of Zephaniah then is a reminder to them that God is still faithful. God will still work out his promise to them even when they see this terrible judgment coming out. God has not abandoned them they will understand that God does have a plan for Israel and God has a plan for the nations. So we know that ultimately this prophecy in Zephaniah is partially fulfilled when the nation of Babylon comes in 
and they conquer all of Israel. They ransack Jerusalem. They capture the people of Israel and bring them into exile, into Babylon as slaves. And when that happens, when the people of Israel sees the broken temple, conquered Jerusalem, the nations crumbling, they are to remember Zephaniah and see the words of judgment. And they are to see our passage today and hold on to the hope that God has not abandoned them, that God will restore them. But what about us? I don't think many of us are worried that Singapore or Thailand is going to come and conquer us. And the church is no longer limited to one place in Israel. It's all over the world. So what do we take from this passage from Zephaniah? Well, we can see here that God's plan is to ultimately bring in people from other nations through the gospel and make them his people. God sent his son into the world so that whoever believes shall not perish. So therefore, we who have heard the gospel, who have been called into God's kingdom, who have benefited so greatly from this mercy of God, we have to take the gospel proclamations seriously ourselves. None of us are Jews. None of us came in because it was promised to us. The only reason we are God's people is because of the gospel. So how can then we, who are saved by the gospel, be stingy and we don't want to share it with other people? We think the gospel is inconvenient. That's ridiculous. So we have to be people who look forward to this day that is coming because that is the day when God is gathering all his people that is the day when we join in together with the rest of his people. And so with that in our hearts then, our attitude towards the people around us should change. We should be looking to how we can invite as many people as we can so that they can come together on that day and find God's salvation so that they will hear the gospel and be saved. And secondly, as we read about how the remnants are purified, how God keeps the humble and God casts out those who are proud, let us remember, let us not be people who are proud. Don't become proud and complacent in your Christianity. Remember, your religion does not save you. It doesn't matter if you are seated in front or you have a special role in church, if you're leading Bible studies, if you're a pastor. At the end of the day, it is only the mercy of God that saves you. So don't be proud. Heed the warnings of Zephaniah because they are for you too. And if that's the case then, your character should be as these people who God just described, the safe remnants. So we have to be people who love justice, who abhor injustice, people who seek to follow God 
rather than people who try to establish yourself. And one of the themes that runs throughout Zephaniah is you will find that Zephaniah points out the leaders. He points out the priests, the princes, those in authority. And his point is that he's saying they have established themselves but rejected God. And you know what led that? Led them down that path? It was their pride. So we need to be constantly measuring ourselves. Take our character, compare it against Christ, and then humbly seek to change the things that doesn't fit. And remember that the big theme in Zephaniah that runs throughout is a warning against pride. So always be humble and seek to obey God. Now, oftentimes, we would think we want to be the strong one, the one in control, the one who's powerful, the one who says something and everyone gets it done. And we want to be like that, even with God's people. But remember, Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So you need to ask this question. What is your character like to God? Are you meek? What about to your pastors, to the various leaders in the church, whether it's leaders of the auxiliary body or the choir or the lay leaders or the Bible study leaders? How do you engage with them? How do you engage with each other? Can you reflect on these relationships and say, you are meek, you are Christ-like in your character? And with that then, we come to the next part of the passage. And here we see what this good news of salvation looks like. If you come to verse 14 to 17, you will see a picture of great rejoicing in this new and gathered remnant of Israel. And if you just skim through the verses, you will find that Israel is called to sing aloud, shout, rejoice, exult with all their heart. And clearly, this is a picture of utmost joyfulness and thankfulness because of what God has done for them. And verse 15 tells us what God has done. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. You see, friends, God has taken away his judgments. That means he has forgiven their sins. God has cleared away their enemies. They now have security. Now for the people then, they would see this, they would think of their circumstances, and they would see this as how amazing God forgives our trespassers. And now God protects us so we will not be destroyed again. And of course, for us, on the other side of the New Testament, we come and we see this greater salvation, this greater victory that God has done. Because ultimately, God has taken away the ultimate enemy, sin and death. When the Israelites hear that the king of Israel, God himself, is dwelling with their people and they shall forever be secure with him, they would see it as a message of hope, as a message of comfort. It's a picture of 
Israel being reestablished, but it's just a shadow that's meant to comfort them in light of the terrible things that are to come. But for us, we no longer see the shadow. We see the true fulfillment of this passage. We see the fullness of it. We see a man hanging on the cross and pouring from his wounds is the blood that cleanses our sins. The blood that removes God's judgment from us because that man on that cross, he bore the punishment meant for us. And then we see this man raised up from death to show us that God has dealt once and for all with sin and death. And then he's ascended. He's seated in heaven at the right hand of the Father, which assures us that he is with us now and forever. Eternally, he is with his people. And we know this man, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. The Lord himself came down in that first advent in the flesh so that, as Zephaniah puts it, he can be in our midst. And so, we come then to the climax of Zephaniah, verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quieten you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. And here we see this picture. This mighty God who saves us is pictured as one who quiets us by his love. Now, I favor another translation which says, he is quiet in his love towards us, which means he no longer accuses us of sin, no longer calls down judgment on us because he has dealt with it. In his love for us, he has dealt with all this thing. And so his love for us is in quietness with no accusation. And this magnificent verse then also paints a picture of God singing over us in exaltation. And this is a picture of pure love and joy. And it's a picture of a man singing a love song to his beloved. And for some of us, we just gloss over and we think, okay, that's an interesting way to put it. But hold on a minute. Can you imagine, friends, that the very God who spoke all creation into existence now sings over you? In speaking, he brings forth all creation. How much greater then when he directs his power towards you and he sings over us in love. So if we understand this picture, this greatness of what it means for God to sing and exalt and bless his beloved, then you will see how beautiful this picture is. The picture of God being united with his people. It's a picture of creation as it was truly meant to be. God's pure love for us and our love in response to him. And seeing this then, do you not long for this day to come? 
verse 18 to 20 then, expands how this love looks like. The people that he gathered, they will no longer suffer reproach. God will save all those that are suffering, who are not valued, who are rejected by the world. And having brought all of these people together then, God promises that God will make them renowned, praised amongst all the earth, blessed with restored fortunes. And this is a heavenly picture of how God is going to remove and restore all the bad things caused by sin. God's going to take away all sufferings and He is going to bless His church when He comes back. So what does this verse mean to us today? Well, firstly, we want to place our trust in God. He has won the great victory. So we have to ask the question, are we people who see this great victory that God has won, take comfort in that victory, and talk about that victory, or are we often more concerned and hungry about our own victory, our own fame? Think about it. When was the last time you told someone about something that you're very proud of about yourself, some achievement that you've done? And then think about when was the last time you talked to someone about this great victory that God has won. When did you last share the gospel? So we need to ask the question, do we see this gospel as this greatest thing to talk about? As this thing on which you have pinned all your hopes and desires on? Or are you more interested to tell people about your own good news, your own desires, your own ambition? So we need to ask the question, what is your motivation in life? Does it reflect the gospel? Does it show a life that is confident in Christ, that's trusting in Him, that sees Him as above all things? Or does it reveal insecurity? Does it reveal that deep down, you don't really trust that God will give you eternal life, eternal joy, and so what you do is you go on your own way and you try to grab whatever little joy and comfort you can get because, hey, you don't know if God's going to give you any of the good things he promised. So friends, if you find yourself living a life that is about gathering material comforts for life, that's about looking for your own joy, for your own comfort, and you're not instead looking to gather treasures in heaven, if you're not instead seeking to prioritize God in your everyday things, then friends, you have failed to understand the truth of the gospel. You have read Zephaniah, but you have not really captured what it's trying to tell you. So, our security and our trust in the gospel our trust in God should be reflected in what we hold of value, in what we choose to prioritize, in how we live our lives. So rejoice in the gospel. Sing it out. Tell it to everyone. And as you live your life in confidence of that victory that Jesus has won, 
the victory that is yours now by faith, that becomes a testimony to the gospel. So believe in God's promises and live like you believe it. Understand that you can miss worldly opportunities for the sake of serving God, for the sake of the gospel. Because God has promised. He will restore you again. He will give you all that you lose back. So you can trust him. And so live as people who trust him. And next, understanding all of these things then, we should be people whose hope is ultimately in the coming day of the Lord. Now ask yourself this question. If you know for sure that tomorrow, at this time, the day of the Lord will come, confirm, what would you do differently with the time you have left? How would you spend your time? Would you flip open your Bible? Would you tell people about the gospel? Would you seek to help people and do good deeds? Now, ask yourself another question. Why don't you do that every day? Friends, don't you know that we should live in anticipation of this day of the Lord because that day will come like a thief in the night. So every day, we should be telling people about Jesus. We should be sacrificial in how we give our time, our money, our energy for gospel work. We should be people that love others, that serves others sacrificially, that do charities. We should be people who generously pour out our love to others. And friends, here's one thing I can guarantee you. On the day when the Lord comes, and if you are accepted into his presence, if you really trust in him and he forgives your sin, he accepts you into heaven, here is one thought that you will definitely not be having in your head. You will not be thinking, oh man, this was easy to get in. You know what? I could have enjoyed my life more, given less for the gospel, enjoyed myself more and still get into heaven. I wish I could redo things again. You would never say that. You would be so awestruck by the majesty and love and awesomeness of God and the great mercy that he has extended to you that you will regret that you wish you have served this Lord with more love, with more zeal, with more fervor because you behold how wonderful and loving he is. So we should be people who live for the day to come. We should be people who pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. We should be people who long for God to come to bring judgment day so that all evil will end. To Christians, judgment day, the day of the Lord that comes, is a good day. Because that is the day when you're finally reunited with your Lord. So live with this coming day of judgment on your hearts and of your minds. Live for that day. Pray for it. 
And as we come to a close, we have seen how Advent is linked to Zephaniah. And in the first Advent, the first coming of the Lord, what we actually see is the answer to the problem that Zephaniah shows us. You see, God has to judge an evil world. A righteous God will have to judge and destroy. God also wants to save his people, but his people are sinners. His people are evil, like you and me. So how does he solve this conundrum? And it is for this reason that Christ came in the flesh that Christmas morning. It was so that Zephaniah can be fulfilled, that God can judge and God can wash away the sins of those who come to him humbly seeking his mercy. And even then, that's not the fullness of what Zephaniah is teaching us, isn't it? Because the day of judgment comes and God then dwells with his people. We see this fullness of God's restoration. And that, my friends, is the second advent, the second coming of Christ. We live between both of this. We look to the first advent with thankfulness for the forgiveness of sins. And therefore, we look forward to the second advent in hope and rejoicing. And so as we observe Advent, as we prepare for the coming of Christmas, I want to leave you with a reminder from our passage from Revelation that was read today. Revelation chapter 7, verse 15, which can be found on page 1229. I'm reading from verse 15. You can just listen if you don't want to flip. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the day that we are looking forward to that we are placing our hope in. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we give you thanks for the first coming of our Lord. Thank you that you have dealt with sin. And Father, we pray that you will lead us all to salvation by trusting in Christ's name. And Father, we pray that if there are those who do not place their trust in Christ here today, that you will show them that your judgment is nigh. It will come. So help them to repent, to turn away from this judgment and come to Christ who saves. And Father, as we look forward for the second coming of Christ, this great day of judgment, 
and at the same time, the great day of mercy, we pray, Father, that that will change the way we live our lives, that we will be people who long to live as your people, to bring glory to your name, and to do all things for your sake. Help us to do this, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.